This morning we're continuing our series of the Gospel of John and we're in chapter eight. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter eight. As we begin, I, I ask, have you ever been in darkness? I mean, uh, the absolute absence of light. You've been in a spot somewhere um, where there was no light whatsoever, no glimmer of light, um, utter, complete darkness. A number of years ago, uh, well, many years ago actually, when I had more time and more energy, uh, I would do backpacking with some friends when I lived in Michigan. And I had all the gear and the desire to spend uh, multiple days in the wilderness that has long uh, faded. Uh, and the, the hope was to, to put as much weight on your back and hike a while and, and look and see stuff and tent. And, and uh, one summer, we decided, uh, late summer actually, that a few of us would go out um, and camp in northern Michigan. We drove five hours north from our home uh, through the Upper Peninsula to the north shore of Lake Superior. Um, and it's an interesting lake because it doesn't feel like a lake when you get there. It's so huge. Lake Superior is uh, 37,000 square uh, miles. It's huge. So when you get there, it feels like an ocean. Um, it, it also... The temperature is, is kind of like an ocean, 40 degrees on average throughout the year. And so our plan was to, to drive up to, to the closest town um, that we were going to dock, and it was uh, the town of Munising, and park our car, uh, take our backpacks and a canoe, and, and, and canoe from the port to Grand Island, just, about, just, just under a quarter of a mile uh, canoeing there, not very far. And Grand Island wasn't that big also, just under 50 square miles, so we hoped to hike a lot of it, had some hills, and you don't have very many of those in Michigan, and some cliffs and some areas to, to see, and so we were going to do this and, and had a good plan, and, and, uh, and you know how it is when you're going on a trip, you, you have this desire to leave at a certain time, and it never happens, and the same for us, you know, one of our guys just was late in getting ready, and so we were three hours later leaving than we had hoped, um, and one thing you need to know, if you've never been to Michigan, once you pass the, from the lower peninsula to the upper peninsula, there is nothing. Like you cross the border of the Mackinac Bridge, and once you get on the other side, there is nothing. It's desolate. Uh, I once had an uncle that lived in northern uh, Michigan in the upper peninsula, and his closest neighbor was 15 miles away. So it, there's just nothing there. So when you cross over, there's no gas stations. There's, there's no civilization whatsoever. So we're late, and we're driving over, and we're going to now... Uh, take the last hour and a half once we've crossed over the bridge to get to Munising. When we arrived in Munising, we realized, boy, we're in trouble because it was close to 7.30 p.m. And we needed to get our gear on our backs, get the canoe off the car, and start to, to, to head over to this island. Uh, and I remember um, paddling in the water and just praying that we wouldn't fall in. 40, it, was, it was colder than 40 degrees. Um, and we were moving, but not as fast as I wanted. And the sun was gone by that point, and we were losing our bearings. And somehow we managed to, to find the shore. We were headed, uh, and, and we, we got ourselves up and, and started to hike into where we we're going to camp. And at that point, it begins to rain. Fitting, right? We're in the dark, and I mean dark, really dark. And I didn't realize how quickly it would get that, that dark. You know, I, I didn't have a good grasp of how much I really need light. Uh, I've kind of spoiled, actually. I think we... If you don't think about it, we have it all the time. We just flip a switch, and, and at that point, it was gone. There was no light. I couldn't see anything. And it's also interesting that when, when you, one of your senses like that is completely uh, limited, the others seem to be heightened, and I, and I could hear everything. 
uh, just the day before we left for the trip, I was talking to a man at our church explaining what our plan was and where we were gonna hike, and he was happy to hear the plans and, and knew very well where we were going. He'd, he'd been to Grand Island many times. He says, in fact, he said, I've been there every year for, for at least a decade. And I said, oh, so where did you hike, assuming that? He's like, oh, I don't, I don't go to the hike. I go to there uh, to hunt bear. <laughs> and he said, have fun. So we're, 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 we're now hiking with our backs, backpacks, 50 pounds or so, um, and a canoe on our heads and, and going in. And I, and I grabbed my flashlight, only realized I never changed the, the batteries, so it wasn't working. And my buddy who's in the front, I'm in the middle, and the buddy behind me, you know, we just said, keep going. And, and the one in the front says, keep going, keep going, we're almost there. He, he doesn't want to use the flashlight. He, he's been there, and, and I have no idea. And I'm walking in complete darkness with a, with a heavy backpack, um, heaviest than I've ever carried before, trying to carry a canoe over our heads, and now, you know, it's downpour. It's just raining. And I needed a light. I, I desperately needed, I wanted to see where I was going. It was literally the blind leading the blind, I felt. And 20 minutes into the hike, I can hear rustling into the woods. And I'm not thinking squirrel, I'm thinking bear. My mind races to, the, and I'm thinking, you know, in that moment, I'm not going to live. I, I will die in, in this island. And I've never felt so helpless as I did in those moments. I couldn't see anything. It was complete darkness. I was trusting a guy in front of me who said he knew the way, but I really wasn't too sure that he did. I had a flashlight, but it didn't work. I had never been there. It was cold. It was raining. The sounds were just irritating me as I'm hiking through. And it hit me this week as we come to this passage in John 8, verse 12, that this is the picture of the unbelieving world right now. Folks, this is what your unbelieving neighbor suffers from every single day. That experience that I went through is what your unbelieving coworker experiences every moment of every day. Darkness. They don't know where they're going. They don't know how to get there. They have a guide in front of them that they don't really trust, but they are. And it, it, and it hit me this, this week as I'm looking at this verse that we, as believers, don't have to live our lives that way. We don't live in darkness, as John says. We live with the light. So follow with me as I read John chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 12 through 20 to kind of set the, the setting here. But we're gonna land just on verse 12 today. Starting in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgments are true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Would you join me as I pray? 
Father, we thank you for this morning, the privilege we've had to come together as the body of Christ and to worship you, to sing in remembrance of who you are and what you've done in our lives. We've come together to pray, to hear the, your word read and, and preached. Father, we come for that purpose. I pray as your word is shared this morning that your spirit will teach us. Again, that we would realize and remember again that Jesus is the light of the world. And he is our hope. And may we take your word this morning, apply it to our lives, and that we would leave changed, different than when we came in. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're gonna look at one verse. I've not done this normally as we've gone through the Gospel of John, but in the midst of this week, and my pastors and I were gone on a conference for the first half of the week, and my planning, it was advantageous to go to the whole length, but I thought best to stick with one verse actually today. So John 8, 12 is what we're gonna handle this morning. And let me read it again. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light of life. There's a lot of rich truth in these 28 words, and I wanna unpack that here in the remaining moments that we have. Whether you know it or not, there is a battle happening right now. A cosmic battle between light and darkness. There are billions of people who are still in darkness with no light. And you and I are part of that cosmic battle between light and darkness. This is a battle that's been happening since the beginning of time. How often do we think about this, the magnitude of this? How often do we forget? We dabble in darkness, we play around with sin, and we sit content in the church while others outside of the family of God are in deep darkness. And as the scriptures say, we'll die and go to hell. Do we realize this? Do we remind ourselves of this? Have you forgotten this morning that if you refuse life, you choose death? You know, there isn't a middle road. The Gospel of John begins with this struggle between darkness and light. Turn back with me to John chapter one. Because John sets the stage here. This idea of light. And he begins in verse one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Since the beginning of all time, there has been a struggle between light and darkness. Light has always been needed, but not wanted. You can read it in Genesis 1, and God created light. God spoke, and there was light. And can you imagine the first, I'm just a little tangent for a moment, the first sunrise, you know, after God creates, an amazing sight that would have been. Once there's darkness, now there's light. And then soon after that incredible act of God, there's conflict in Genesis 3. You can read about the fall of all mankind when Adam chose to ignore the light of God and shakes his fist at him and instead turns towards darkness. 
He chooses his own plans. He chooses his own desires. And now our world is in darkness under the judgment of God. As a result of sin entering the world, God had to separate himself from man and place judgment in all creation. It's been this way since Genesis. We tend to, in America, think that we are just now entering judgment. We tend to use these words and this argument. We're just now, now we're bringing in this, this terrible time and folks, we never left. We, we, we don't need to return to a righteous America because there never was a righteous America. The time of imagining that we're a majority as Christians is over because it was never true. People say that we're living in a post-Christian America, a post-Christian nation. And the only way you can say that is because there used to be a Christian America. But how do you define that? You know, it's only a Christian America if you define Christian like the liberal Episcopalian do, does or the Methodists do. But if you define Christian as John 3 does, then America has always been one birth short of Christianity. Our country has always been in darkness. And our country will continue to be in darkness until King Jesus returns. We cannot begin to think that our nation is just on a a moral decline. It's, It's not true. There was a fall, and you can read it in Genesis 3. Our world is in darkness and under the judgment of God. We may think that we're inherently good or we may think we're inherently neutral, but the Bible teaches us that the world was created good and then through sin, our world fell into darkness and evil. The world is bent towards its own destruction, seeking to overcome light. And I know you know this, but I want to remind you of it anyways. Because it's coming here. In the next month or so, it's going to be talked about a whole lot. But folks, there is no president that will be elected that can change this. We know this. You know, it's not through a good Supreme Court that we can then change this. Doesn't mean we don't be involved. And I'm not saying that. We're going to be involved. It's not through Republicans. It's not through Democrats that this will change. It's only through Jesus Christ. He is the light. The world needs the light. Our world has been in darkness. And we see it. We see it through the pages of Scripture. As you read the redemption story, it was was this way when Noah walked on the earth. It was the same with the Tower of Babel. The same with Abraham, Moses, and David. And you can follow through the time of the judges and the kings and the prophets. And you can see it through human history as well. Mankind who has strived to create systems and societies that are based on a false center, based on man as the center of the universe instead of God as the center of the universe. The darkness tends to confuse us on on who should be at the center, and we place ourselves in sovereign control of our destiny. And in darkness, well, the world loves it. They don't want to be corrected. Look over at John 3, 19 and 20. He again teaches us, he again reminds us of this world. He says in verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light is coming to the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to light lest his work should be exposed. The world doesn't want to be exposed. The world doesn't want to race towards the light. They love darkness. Not only is this world in darkness, none of the judgment of God, we, we, we love it. The world chooses it. The world loves their sin. They, they love their sin and they hate the light. It has a, a love affair with darkness and they will fight to keep it. They will protect it. We're not innocent people living in a dark world. We're, we're guilty people, rightly condemned to death for our rebellion and our hate for light. And our only hope is Jesus. You see, in, in the darkness, you think that you can be king and that you can set up your world around yourself. But when you come to the light, you have to recognize that there is only one true, right king of the universe, only one ruler of all things. And folks, it's not you. It's not me. It's God alone. And by ourselves, we cannot overcome the darkness. We need the light. And throughout the Old Testament, God chose to show his light through his people. Story after story, God was calling out a people. If you go to Exodus 3, 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And then God in that story shows his power over over all the gods, the small g, the little gods of Pharaoh and brought his people out of Egypt. And when God was bringing his people out from the desert, out from Egypt, he led them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of cloud, a fire, excuse me, at night. And this was a symbol that God was with his people. The presence of God is represented by light throughout his word. The light came to dwell among his people in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And salvation has always been wrapped up in the imagery of light. Psalm 27.1, write this reference down. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? The imagery of light is throughout scripture and God's chosen people. The Jews were longing for the day when the true light would come. They would long, they would look forward to this and they would celebrate this. Each year the people of Israel Israel celebrated the Festival of Tabernacles. We've talked about this in the last few months. And this, this festival was full of expectation and symbolism about the day when the Messiah would come for his people. And Jewish rabbis tell us that at night during the festival in the court of women, they had these huge uh, buckets, so to say, that were filled with oil and they would light them. And it would light up the whole temple mount and all the surrounding tents during the festival, which would show the promise from scripture that there would be a day when there would be unending light. Isaiah 9, 2 speaks of the day when the Messiah would come. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. They lived for the expectation of the Messiah coming to rescue them. And they would transfer them from darkness to light. Now, this is the testimony that we read in the beginning of this gospel. As John writes for us, turn back to John chapter 1 again. Look at verse 6. 
John writing about John the Baptist, you know, even as the song that we sang earlier, that what John's message was, behold the Lamb of God. So the writer writing about John the Baptist says in verse six, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God sent the light to the world. He sent the light to a world of darkness. And John is a witness to the true light, the presence of God in our history. And he sent Jesus to illuminate for us what salvation is. He, he, he came, John the Baptist came to preach and to point us to God. John continues in, in chapter three here. Verse 16. Right, should we quote it together? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He keeps going. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. In the verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. God understands darkness. He understands the plight of mankind. And God sent the light into the darkness to come and to rescue. So we come to John chapter eight. And actually, you know, it starts in John chapter six. We covered this a, a few months ago where we find Jesus going up to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. And as I said, the, the feast was full of this symbolism of who God is and what he came to do. There's a reason why Jesus comes now to these festivals. They expected to see God. They, they were waiting for the Messiah. Richard Phillips in his commentary of John writes, one of the great events was the festival of lights that took place in the first night of the feast and perhaps in the subsequent nights as well. Four great candelabras were each were with, with four golden bowls filled with oil were let in the temple court and the bright light from the 16 bowls were illuminated the whole temple and after the feast, those lights had gone out. Perhaps the lampstands were still present in the temple courts, the bowls having been taken away. Where the lamps had hung, Jesus now presented himself as the light of the world. He fulfilled what the ritual had symbolized. Jesus is the light. He alone provided the reality for which the people rejoiced in the feast. But can I tell you something in the midst of this? They didn't want him. They just wanted the festival. 
They had built it up and they had worshiped that. And as we'll see next week, as we move on in this chapter from verse 12 and on, they're angry at Jesus because how dare he come disrupt their festival? And Jesus says, I'm the point of this. He stands in the midst of them, says the light has come. The long expected and long awaited savior is now present before his people. And in the center of the celebration, Jesus stands and declares to them, I am the light of the world. And can you imagine the shock on people at this point? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The illuminator himself speaking to the people and even using the name found throughout the Old Testament says, I am. I am. They understood that. They understood what he was calling himself. And Jesus is now declaring that he is the fulfillment of all that was spoken by the prophets and all that was foreshadowed in the temple and in the tabernacle throughout the Old Testament. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The light of the world is me. Charles Spurgeon, speaking about the tabernacle in Christ, said, the tabernacle was old, excuse The tabernacle of old was not full of truth, but full of image and shadow and symbol and picture. But Christ is full of substance. He is not the picture, but the reality. He's not the shadow, but the substance. Herein, O believer, do rejoice with joy unspeakable, for you come unto Christ, the real tabernacle of God. You come unto him who is full of glory of the Father, and you come unto the one in whom has not the representation of grace which you need, but grace itself. Not the shadow of truth ultimately to be revealed, but the very truth by which the soul is accepted in the sight of God. This is Jesus. He is the light of the world. God is no longer found in the temple of the tabernacle, but he takes up residence among his people. And what Jesus is saying is that all that Old Testament imagery, a symbol, is now completed in me. If you remember a few months ago when we studied John 7, verse 37, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And we noted then that the water pouring ceremony in the Feast of Tabernacles had a connection to the events in Exodus, specifically God's providing water from the rock. And it's the same similar connection with the Festival of Lights and Jesus' claim to be the light of the world. The shock of the Jews as they stand there as Jesus is proclaiming who he is And this light celebration recalled the pillar of fire that that led and guided and protected Israel during the people's passage through the desert. And Exodus 13, 21 tells us, the Lord will be with them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. They might travel by day and night. And John 8, 12 shows us that while Jesus is the one true light of the world, will not only will benefit, will understand salvation, but will be able to live. We'll be able to understand life. 
And it comes through following him, he says. We, we follow Jesus as the Israelites followed the cloud of fire. And they trusted it to lead them and found protection under its shadow. And as we follow Jesus, he protects us from foolish deceptions that would look to take us away from him. He says we, we follow him. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to trust him, to believe him as his disciple, as his follower. And when the clouds moved, the Israelites moved. When the clouds settled, they made camp. Likewise, we follow Jesus to his cross and we die to our sins. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. But practically speaking, what does follow mean? You know, if we consider the use of the Greek word for follow, we can probably better understand what Jesus means here. It literally means the use of a soldier following his commander into battle. And the Christian who fights against evil in the armor of God with the sword of God's word, we follow him. It's used as a servant or slave who serves as master. J.C. Ryle, writing his commentary on John, says, to follow Christ is to commit ourselves wholly and entirely to him as our only leader and savior and to submit ourselves to him in every matter, both of doctrine and practice. To follow Jesus requires a radical commitment. Nothing like the world has seen. Do we think this way? Have we considered this? Why would Jesus take such a radical view of following him? Why does Jesus make such a big deal of this? I mean, can't he have just a much more balanced view of life? Can't Jesus just chill out a little bit? Why does he say this? You know, Matthew 16, 24 says the same thing as I read earlier. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus understands darkness. Jesus is saying to you and to me that we die to ourselves. You die to your plans. You die to your desires. You die to your control. You know, I love the early version in Luke where it says, take up your cross daily. Anyone else gonna be honest with me this morning? Isn't this a daily pursuit? Don't we daily have to die to ourself? I love control. I'll just admit it right now. I have to die to that. He's in control. And I wanna follow him. I don't wanna walk in darkness. I wanna walk with him. If you're not following Christ, if you're not denying yourself, you're walking in darkness. That's what the verse says. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And following is synonymous with believing. Believing him. If we're in Christ, we are trusting and believing him. 
And if you're trusting and believing in Christ, he promises that you will not walk in darkness, but you'll have the light of life. Folks, you get Jesus. And this is the same message that you see for, that Jesus has throughout his gospels. Jesus with the woman at the well. He, she comes in, in guilt in the middle of the day, in the, in the, in the midst of a sinful lifestyle, and the guilt and the darkness. And Jesus gives hope. Not through herself, but through him alone. She gives up her guilt. She gives up her sin. Gives out her, her darkness because she gets Jesus. She gets Jesus. And let me tell you, Jesus is better. Do you believe that this morning? Like, really, do you believe that, that Jesus is better? Maybe you've forgotten. Maybe you're here this morning. You've, you've forgot that. You, you once believed you once were walking so close to Jesus in faithful obedience to his word, but life has interrupted that. And you allowed it. And you fell back in love with darkness. Maybe you're just flirting with darkness. You're accepting the world's values, striving for a world's accomplishments, serving the world's priorities, dreaming the, the world's dreams. You have forgotten and you don't believe that Jesus is better. How many of you this morning have forgotten either willfully or subtly through foolish decisions? And I unashamedly say this morning, folks, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than our suffering. Jesus is better than our success. Jesus is better than our comfort. Jesus is better than our, our income. Jesus is better than our sin. Jesus is better than the darkness. Jesus is better. But maybe we forgot. Maybe we are the the father in the gospels where his son is ill and he comes to Jesus and he's pleading with Jesus and he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. So maybe our, our prayer should be, Jesus, you're better. Make my heart believe this. I need to believe this. Not just acknowledge it, but believe it. And remember that we have no other king than Jesus. That he is better. That he is the light of the world. That whoever would follow him will not walk in darkness. But we get Jesus, we get the light. We get Jesus. All of this is an introduction to next week's sermon. Don't get worried. And this morning we have a privilege to celebrate communion together. And I want to read a passage. So don't close your Bibles yet. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. I want you to see it in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 9. And 
And I want to read this before the men come. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater or better and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus is better. Verse 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. This passage here in Hebrews reminds us again of the communion service. And the point of communion. And that Jesus instituted communion. And if you remember back in the Gospels, on that occasion, Jesus sat with his disciples. And he shared bread and wine with his disciples, his followers, before his death. And during this meal, Jesus wanted to show everyone involved that they were joining a covenant with God. Jesus wanted to show that God was establishing the covenant through his death. And we want to show that each follower must follow him in life and in death. This is significant for us. This is the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives us now instructions of what communion is and why we do it. And as the men come forward to serve communion, I want to read part of that passage because we do this in seriousness, this communion service. Paul reminds us, gives us instructions on how to, to partake and be a part of this service. And I want you to remember the words here as I read it from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks 
and eats without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And I read that for you so that you can take time to examine yourself as Paul writes for us, confessing your sins before God. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So as the bread is being passed, I encourage you to take that time and commune with God.